I'm going to share with you uh, things that I hope will do something for you to bring about whatever God needs to change in your life. And anytime you deal with change, it always is painful. But I pray that you will allow the pain if it means salvation. What do you say? The religious community in the 60s was shocked by a professor who made a statement. And the statement he made was that God was dead. He was a theologian, and that's what was shocking, that a theologian would make a statement such as, God is dead. Now, Pastor Bentley, can you just put your finger on the, on the uh, mouse pad? Just put your finger on the mouse pad to move the first one. And if it moves the first one, we're okay. All right. And if it doesn't, then I'll ask you to use your finger again. And we'll just proceed. Um, it came out of a magazine, Time Magazine. And it shocked a lot of people because um, it seems to appear with all the atrocities that have taken place during the First World War, Second World War, um, that God really did not exist. When I became converted, I was working in a machine, I, be, I got a job in a machine shop, and I got a letter from the U.S. government telling me that I was drafted during the Vietnam War. My boss told me that I didn't have to worry about it because he was a personal friend of the colonel, and he could get me released from military duty. I said to him, no thanks. He said, what do you mean, no thanks? I know the colonel. I can get you off. You don't have to go to Vietnam. Why would you want to go to Vietnam anyway? You get killed. I said, no, I don't want you to do that. Thank you. He said, well, what's wrong with you? I said, nothing wrong with me. I just don't want you to do that. Why, he said, because I've manipulated my life all along all these years and I decided to stop manipulating my life. I want God to lead my life and not me trying to figure out how I can get out of something. He said, God, there is no God. And then he explained to me how as a little child, being a Jew, trying to escape with women and children and old people, all of a sudden, a plane, an Italian plane, came down and began to shoot them and kill as many as possible. And he said, as a little boy, he was hit under the train, and he watched all these people being mowed down. And the question that came to his mind is, where is God? So is God lost? Let's pray together as we study. Father, Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word. And we pray for your spirit to guide, to direct us, Give me clear thoughts, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The question about God being lost is not something that just atheists, agnostics, infidels uh, deal with. There are many, many young people who grow up in the Adventist church who really do not 
and are not and do not understand or know or experience the reality of God. Is it possible for you to grow up in the Adventist church and never know God? What's the answer? Yes. Is it possible for people to be religious and never know God? Yes. And so while it is true that there are atheists and agnostics and infidels who don't believe in God, uh, you would expect that. But you don't expect it in a religious setting. But the highest number of people who don't know God are not found outside. It is found inside. There are millions of religious people in the world who don't know God. That's the reality. And I know of young people who have left the church because they have never experienced God. I've known of young people back when I was uh, in the military who came into the military at the same time that I was there, who though they grew up in certain areas of what we call Adventist ghettos, uh, these young men gave evidence that they knew not God. Even though they professed to be Adventists, Yet, the sad commentary was that they did not know God. Many people have that challenge. They have a hard time trying to find God. And that's interesting because in the Bible, in the book of Jeremiah, let's see if I can get the next one. Can you put your finger there, the magic touch? And in the book of Jeremiah, it says, ye shall what? Seek me and what? And find me when ye shall search for me with how much? With all your heart. Why is it so difficult for people to find God then? If the scripture says that you will seek me and find me when you shall search for me with how much? All your heart. Why is it that young people make shipwreck of faith, leave the church, leave the church family, leave the faith, and go out into the world and live a reckless or not so reckless, a very prosperous life without God. Why? I'm going to give you the answer. I'm just presenting a question. Okay? So, you shall seek me in, find me when? Search for me with how much? Half of your heart. All your heart. Now, the, the reality is that in the scriptures, people think God is lost. But what we find from the scriptures is that God is not lost. He is the actually uh, looking. For example, Jesus gave three parables in the book of Luke, chapter 15. The first parable was of a lost sheep. The second parable was of the lost coin. The last parable was of a lost son. Three lost conditions. 
The lost sheep was lost. By the way, sheep do not have GPS. When sheep get lost, they get lost. The first group, they're lost, but do not know how to find their way back. It's a terrible, uh, scary sense that comes over you when you realize that you're lost and you don't know how to find your way. Is that true? Any of you have been lost and felt you couldn't find your way? And it's even more exasperating when you need to get someplace and you can't get there because you're lost. That's what happened to me the other day. Okay. So three lost conditions. The first one, lost, but doesn't know how to find its way back. And the interesting thing about that lost condition is that someone went to find them. In other words, the sheep did not initiate the search. The shepherd is the one that initiated the search. The wonderful thing about that story is that it doesn't end with a shepherd coming back with empty hands. What do you say? The shepherd comes back with what he went to look for. The second condition is the lost coin. But the lost coin is lost where? In the house. Is it possible for a person to be lost in the house? What's the answer? Yes. Again, the condition is a lost condition, and the coin does not know that it's lost. And there are many, 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 many millions of people who do not know that they are lost. The, the, the term that describes them is called strangers to divine influences. What is it? Strangers to divine influences. These are people who are lost but do not know that they are lost. And again, what you find in this second condition is that the coin does not initiate the search. Who does? The woman. The woman who loses the coin, lights the candle, and begins to sweep the ground in the house. By the way, in those days, there were no carpet floors, but dirt floors. And if you walk on dirt enough, the dirt actually becomes pulverized. And pretty soon, you can drop a coin and it falls underneath the level of the dust. And unless you sweep the dust out of the way, you will not find the coin. So the woman then searches and finds the coin. Again, the story does not end with a woman coming back and saying, I can't find it. On the contrary, she comes back and says what? Rejoice with me, for I have found my coin. The third condition is a condition where the boy who is lost wants to be lost. It's hard to understand why somebody would want to be lost. But the third condition is a lost son who purposefully gets lost. And he does not want to be found. Three lost conditions. 
But it's interesting that even the third condition, while it appears that no one's doing the search, the reality is that the father is agonizing for the son to return, and his prayers are answered when he sees the boy coming down the old familiar track, and the father runs and hugs the boy. Three lost conditions, three found conditions. So in reality then, it isn't the lost that initiate the search. It is the one who has lost who initiates the search. So in the Bible then, it, isn't, it does not reveal that you and I actually found God. It is that God actually went and found us. But now that you've, you've considered this, then you have to ask the question, if it's true that God is the one that initiates the search, then why is it that people have a difficult time finding God? If he's searching, if he's the one running after, if he's the one sweeping, as it were, if he's the one waiting until the sun comes to his senses, then why is it that people have a hard time finding God? The reason why people have a hard time finding God is because people become escape artists. Become what? Escape artists. One of the most famous escape artists was a fellow who lived not too long ago who, no matter what they do to chain him up, etc., he always had a way of escaping. How many of you remember his name? What was his name? <laughs> All right, so, when people don't find God, it is not because God is not searching. It is because people become escape artists. And there are interesting ways how people become escape artists. Number one, people become escape artists by simply uh, denying that God exists. If you deny that God exists, then to you, God does not exist. And so it becomes easy for a person who doesn't uh, relish the idea of God for them to just simply say he doesn't exist. And they'll even use arguments like, uh, show him to me. You can't touch him, you can't feel him. What do you mean he exists? There's no God. And the, the interesting thing about that is that there are a lot of things that we can't see that exist in the real. Is that true? How many of you have ever experienced gravity? Any of you? How do you know it exists? You see, except you've never fallen, if you have never fallen, fallen, you would never know that there's any such thing as 
gravity. But you don't feel gravity, do you? How many of you have ever felt gravity? Don't raise your hand. If you did, I would have to correct you. You experience the fall. You feel the fall. You don't feel gravity. Okay. How many of you have gone around a corner and feel yourself being pushed beyond where you are traveling? What is that called? Hmm? Centrifugal force. You would never know it exists unless you experienced it. Is that true? How many of you have ever seen electricity? Any of you have seen electricity? Again, there's not a soul on the planet who has ever seen electricity. Now you say, what do you mean, Pastor? I've seen the spark. Okay. What you've seen is not electricity. You have seen the result of electricity. The spark is simply electricity passing through elements that heat up, and by heating up, they give light, but you have not seen the electricity. You have seen the result of electricity. Lightning, when you see lightning, all you're seeing is the elements being heated up by something that's quickly passing through the elements. And so the elements light up, and you say, I saw electricity. No, you didn't see electricity. You saw the results of electricity. You saw the elements heated up. There's not a soul on the planet that has ever seen electricity. I mean, if you want to know if it's real, put your finger in the, in the you know, you understand what I'm saying? The other day I was working on an, on the electricity, and all of a sudden I said, <laughs> and I said, oh no. Somebody threw the switch on me. So I went to the breaker box and turned it off, make sure I didn't experience it again. And then I was working in another uh, outlet, and I was sure that it was off until it actually kind of exploded in my face. Then I realized that somebody again turned on the switch. And so I went to turn it on, okay? You don't see it, you simply experience the results of it, okay? There are many, many things. I could go on and on and on and on about many things that exist that you never see, you, you never know they exist unless you experience them or unless you, you are the victim of that particular element that we're talking about. And so, People who are arguing the, the non-existence of God on the basis that you cannot feel or see them uh, are using arguments that really, if they were true to their arguments, they would have to admit that there are a lot of things that, that do not exist simply because they have not seen them. But they would know that to argue such would be in vain because there are many, many things around us. We know air exists simply because we Breathe it. You don't see air. How many of you have ever seen air? I mean, can you grab it? Try to grab it. Can you grab it? No. Is it there? Yes. We know it exists simply because we experience the results of it. Okay. So, there are people who think that by denying that God exists, have done away with God. But they haven't. There are other people who uh, try to find a way of uh, not experiencing God by simply getting 
involved in activities that do not permit them opportunity to reflect on the reality that there's a God. There are people who are moral people who would not stoop to do anything, quote, uh, immoral, but who do not, on the same page, want to commit themselves to God, who will deny that God exists simply by being everlastingly involved in doing good things. And doing what kind of things? Good things. Others just simply plunge themselves in pleasure. In what? Pleasure. How many of you have heard of the phrase party hogs? Any of you have heard that phrase? You know what a hog is, right? Hmm? A hog suggests it's that uh, there is a desire to, to take in as much as possible beyond its limit. Okay. And so a party hog is a reference used, especially where I come from, New York City, where people work throughout the week to make enough money so they could go partying during the weekend. And so they live from one party to the next party to the next party to the next party. They're constantly, constantly involved in pleasure. In what? In pleasure. And by being involved in pleasure, they cannot come to the place where they can experience God. So being involved in pleasure, or there are people who actually get into reckless living, living in such a way that their very experience would suggest a denial that God even exists. The tricky one is the one where people are sensible enough to understand that perhaps there is a God, but they have no desire to submit themselves to God. And the reason for that is that they have interests that they want to pursue, and they know that in order to pursue their interests, they have to try to create an environment where God does not exist. There are other people who are even smarter than that. They become religious. Become what? Religious. Or play religion. I remember when I was a soldier, uh, one of my friends died, and the government, the military, ordered me to take his body back to, to the States. So I flew to California and uh, then had to escort his body up to a place called Lakeport or Clear Lake in California, and there I had to stay with the body until he was finally buried. In that area, I met a, a family. It was a husband, a wife, and a young, young son. And the, the particular uh, husband was what you would consider to be the, the uh, epitome of a saint. He had silver white hair. He always dressed in a black suit. And he was an elder in the church. 
and played the role of being a very godly person. Uh, he always talked about religious themes. Um, but finally, the wife came to me, and I'm not sure why she did this, but she came to me to reveal that the saintly husband was actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. I think you've heard that term, haven't you? That the man at home was, was violent. He uh, was very abusive verbally and physically to both the wife and the son. But yet, out in the open, he looked like a model Christian. So the man then was hiding behind religion. The reason for it, I believe, is because he had a high position in a certain institution. And that high position uh, suggested that whoever was in that position was a model of person who was uh, morally upright, etc. So all the time while he was acting that way, in his home life, he was a completely different person. And so, could a person be connected to God who verbally and physically abuses their wife and son? What's the answer? What's the answer? No. And so, we know of people in the scriptures who likewise played the role, as it were, covered up all the time because they didn't want people to assume that they were not holy, so they played holy. And one of the biggest challenges that I had when I was in the military, when I went to basic training, was with young people who, like myself, were drafted, but who grew up as Adventists, and during the daytime, they would uh, do the same thing that I did, go to the training, etc. They professed to be conscientious objectors. They professed to be Sabbath keepers. But when it came to Friday night, they were found in the bars drinking. And on Sabbath morning, when we went to chapel, they would wait outside smoking cigarettes until the chapel opened, and then they went in and went to sleep. And the sole reason why they claimed to be Adventists was because they knew that the military usually preferred choosing Seventh-day Adventists to send them to a place called Walter Reed Memorial Hospital so that they could become what is called white coats. And since they knew that they stood a better chance of being selected because they were conscientious objectors and the military didn't need conscientious objectors, they needed people who could shoot, that they had a better chance of being selected to go and become one of those white coats and spend their two years in the military in Washington, D.C., actually, Frederick, Maryland. But on Friday night, they were doing their thing. Saturday morning, they did their thing. And uh, so they had the benefit of not working on Saturday and Sunday, while all the rest of the soldiers had to work six days except for Sunday. And that was a good benefit, what do you say? Yes, but who were they using for their benefit? The name of who? God. And one time, one of the sergeants came to me and said to me, we're confused. I said, what are you confused about, sergeant? He said, we're confused. Who is a true Adventist? You 
or they. It was a very, very difficult thing for me because I did not want to give my church a bad name. And so, and I did not want to incriminate them. So I simply said, by their fruits, you shall know them. So what is it then, what is it that people do to deny the existence of God besides these things? Well, all of these people who I mentioned, all of these cases I've mentioned, simply are cases that reveal that people are not willing to admit that they need to surrender themselves to God. The reason why people can't find God is because most of the time people are running. People are what? Running. And they run in these different ways that I just mentioned. Either by denying there's a God, by getting involved with pleasure, by getting religious. There are many different ways that people can evade the reality of God in their lives while they're going through these different phases of running from God. Think about it. Jonah, what did he do? He ran. Samson, what did he do? He ran. Paul, what did he do? He ran. There are people who ran from God because they recognized that to surrender to God would mean that they would have to give up on themselves and recognize that they need God in their lives. And sometimes human pride does not permit for that. It is hard for people to, to yield to God when pride is so much alive that they, to admit that they have weaknesses or that they need God in their lives uh, would be uh, pride shattering. And many people can't deal with hurting ego. So they run. They run, they run, they run. When I was in uh, show business, I came to the, to, uh, the place where I felt my sense that maybe there was a God. I was in show business for eight years. And during my time there, there were moments when I sensed that something was missing, but I, I had no way of connecting what I had missing with God. Because frankly, I had turned away from the whole idea of religion because of all the things that I saw that made my stomach sick when I saw it. When the priest would come by to take my friends to his apartment, and the priest was supposed to represent who? God. When the altar boy, who had the filthiest mouth on the block, would go on Sunday, and with his hands folded in the form of prayer, walking behind the priest, and then after that come out and use foul language that was worse than a sailor. When my buddies who took me to the synagogue to show me how uh, they could get drunk for free, while the, we would go in before the rabbi and say the abuchas, which were the holy prayers, 
And then they would uh, dismiss themselves by saying, we need to go to the bathroom. And the rabbi remained with the rest of the people doing his thing. They would then lead me to the kitchen, where generally speaking, in the refrigerator, there was a gallon full of Manashevis wine. And while the rabbi was busy, they too were busy, drinking as much as they could. They would get drunk and leave the synagogue drunk for free. When I saw all those things, I have to tell you that I began to think that religion was nothing more than a cop-out, people who did not have enough sense about them. And so when I was in show business and there were moments when I felt there was something missing, I could never connect it with God. Because to me, God did not exist. And it was not until a drug party where that particular night among 40-odd bikers like the Hells Angels who threw the party, everything that you wanted to participate in, you could. I'm speaking about all the drugs that were offered for free. And when everybody was intoxicated, everybody was inebriated, everybody was high, whatever term you want to use, where the mind was altered, somebody raised the question, who is God? And so we spent the whole night trying to figure God out. Here we were in our drunken state of mind trying to figure God out. And what's amazing is this, that I still today remember in detail the conversation. And I don't know how it was possible because I can tell you that there are many things that I did during show business that I have no idea that I participated in. I mean, there are just blank bands of time in my mind relative to my time in show business. But I remember in detail the discussion in that night. And when I left at 4 o'clock in the morning, the terrible thought struck me, the terrifying thought struck me, if there's a God, I'm in serious trouble. And the thought was not very comforting. Therefore, I immediately shoved the thought away with the idea that I would never again consider it. Well, the brethren are trying to catch, catch up with my uh, PowerPoint presentation. So now that, that it's working, let me go all over there. So here are the conditions that we mentioned. And now I'm way down toward the end. There I am. So during that time then, I became frightened about the idea that there was a God. Because if there was a God, the things that I enjoyed, I would have to abandon. And therefore, I did not want to abandon the things I liked. So I had to then conclude that there was no God. 
So I spent time in show business, and uh, I kept that thought away for a while until I met it again when I saw my brother getting baptized. My first time in a Seventh-day Adventist church. And when that thought came back, I did not want to contemplate it because I began to immediately to equate God with I can't have any fun. If I become a Christian, I can't have any fun. I equated God with humiliation. If I become a Christian, I would have to leave the high position of recognition that I have, and I'd have to end up working in a dingy old factory in New York City, like the rest of the immigrants. And I didn't want to be considered an immigrant. So I equated God with the one who took everything away from you that you liked, the one who wanted to make your life miserable so that he could rejoice over your misery. I fought it, but the more that I fought the idea of God, the more that I realized that I needed to do something about it. And before I went on a world tour, I was confronted with the reality that perhaps God does exist. When I saw my brothers being baptized and saw the change in their lives, the question that came to my mind was, could they have found God? And it became a great struggle for me. Because at the time I was 21 years old, I had reached the peak of show business. And I didn't want to surrender what I thought I had worked so hard to gain. And then I realized that this was real. I sensed that God knew what I was thinking. And there began in me a terrible struggle over having to surrender. Surrendering is very difficult. Giving up on self, admitting that you need God in your life is very difficult. But I knew that it was, my time had come. The judgment hour had reached. I either was going to have to give myself to God, accept the reality that he was God, or turn my back on all that I was 
experiencing. And it was at a, at a dance party that I decided to throw in the towel, to quit fighting. I went home, and when I got home, it was a terrible struggle. I had never felt being lost before until that night. And there's nothing worse than a person coming to the reality that he's lost. And when you're lost, it's a scary experience. I began to struggle because I began to realize that if I was going to follow God, I needed to give up things that I did not have strength to give up. And I simply prayed a simple prayer while I was struggling. I said, God, help me. Take these things from me. When I said that prayer, a peace came over me. And instantly I realized that I was no longer a drinker, a smoker, a druggie. I said instantly. It was a reality, an awareness that God really was real when he instantly took those things away. And I stood up and I remember the peace that came over me and the joy that flooded my soul when I experienced God in my life. I knew from then on that I was going to serve this God who I ran away from for so long. Many of us want to experience God in a more personal way. But some of us have ambitions. We have habits, addictions, not necessarily to drugs, but addictions to things we like, things we don't want to give up, we don't want to surrender. And we somehow are smart enough to sense, like I did, that he's there someplace. But I was playing a mind game, thinking that, in fact, this is what I thought. If he's there, I'm going to let, let him see that I need to keep this way of life. And that's why I went to a dance, to prove to him that I could not live without the excitement of the dance. But the place that I went to, to prove to him that I could not live without the excitement of life, was the very place that he used to turn my life upside down. And it was from then that I decided I would follow God. And you know, it wasn't as painful as I thought it would be. Yes, I thought I would end up in a dingy dark factory working and the humiliation that would come 
when you are a star and then all of a sudden, you know, you're working in this dingy factory. But you know, it's interesting that what I thought would be the feelings, the sensations that would come over me, the shame, the embarrassment, actually became a wonderment of living a normal life for once. Living a what? A normal life for once. The clothing that I used to love to wear, that I, and I mean I used to love to wear, the hip hugger rainbow color bell bottoms. Uh, and, yeah. When I became converted, I realized that all of those things that were using to bring attention to who? Look at me. Look at who? Look at me. It's difficult to die to self. When I struggled and surrendered is when I found the reality that God is real. He's alive. And when he changed my life that night and I decided to follow him, the things that I loved, I began to detest. As I looked at my 10 rings that I had on my fingers, I thought, what in the world do I have all these on for? I took them all off and threw them in the garbage can. The bell-bottom hip-huggers, the, the, the tuxedos, burgundy, and the golden tuxedos, the blue tuxedos that I had, I gave them to my mother to give them to the poor. The equipment that I had, showman, fenders, ampeg amplifiers, bass guitar and all that, got rid of them for $20. The change was radical, but it was great because now I knew that God was real. He was what? He was real. And when I decided to follow the master, when I thought we'd become the end, I thought I would have to kind of fold my hands and sit in the corner and wait until Jesus returned. But when I decided to commit myself to God, I discovered that he had plans for me that beyond anything I ever thought. God did for me things that I never thought could be possible. Yes, I have seen the things that the Bible writes about, miracles that take place. I have seen them personally, I've experienced them personally. I've seen the reality of God and what God can do. And then I, I wonder why I was so stupid why was I trying to flee from God, the one who really could do for me what I could never do for myself? And so when I surrendered to God, it, and then I discovered his reality, I could go any place. That's why I told that man, that Jew, who said there's no God. I said, to you there's no God. To me, he's very real. No, I don't want you to get me off. I want to go wherever God wants me to go. And rather than going to Nam, God sent me to Korea. And today I can stand here before you and tell you that it's been a rich experience surrendering to God. Doing what? Surrendering to God. So 
Sometimes young people get into relationships, boy and girl. And that relationship means more to them than having God in their lives. And if you're trying to talk to them, they get angry because they don't want to give up that experience that they're having, that earthy experience. And so to talk to them about God is senseless to them because they want to gain, keep holding on to this that they have. They do not realize by doing so, they're forming a God that can't help them in the place of the God who can. So, are you running? There's something in your life that you can't give up or you don't want to give up. And somehow you play this game with God. You want him, but you don't want him. You understand what I'm saying? You want the benefits of having God, but you don't want to have the, the deficits of having God because you, you're too smart. You realize if I accept God completely and fully, I'm going to have to admit who I am. I'm going to have to give up on what I am. I'm going to have to quit following what I want to follow. I'm going to have to surrender my will to him, and I don't want to do that. But I can tell you this, friend, that if you put God first in your life, if you let him catch up to you, if you quit running, you'll experience that what he brings to your life is far better than anything that you can hold on to. And I'm sharing that as a personal testimony. I don't know how many of you, do you recognize that article that's up there? Do you have, have any idea who that is? How many of you have uh, heard of Happy Days, any of you? How many of you remember the theme song of Happy Days, Rock Around the Clock? You don't remember it, one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock rock, okay. I was the bass player of that group. In our day, we were more popular than the Beatles, more popular than Elvis Presley. So, yes, I was the bass player of the, at that time, the most famous group in the world. And I'm only sharing that with you, not to boast, but to put in perspective what I'm talking about. Do you understand? This young girl was 13 years old. She grew up in a home in Michigan, by the way, Christian home, but she hated the constant, don't do this and don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? She didn't want to continue to be a good girl all the time. She wanted to have the liberty of doing whatever she wanted to do when she wanted to. And at the age of 13, she ran away from home. She climbed out the window and left. Rather than going to California, she was a smart little girl. She decided that she wouldn't go to California because most runaways went to California. Instead, she went to Chicago. 
And then when she got to Chicago, uh, she had a, a sense of uh, at least following part of what the parents would tell her, don't talk to strangers. So she was looking in the, in the storefronts, in the big store windows of uh, downtown Chicago, and all the beautiful dresses and all the beautiful things. She had never seen anything like that before. She's admiring all this, and all of a sudden, a, a car, black car, pulled up, parked uh, by the sidewalk, and a well-dressed man came out, went to the window, and stood there looking next to her, and she kind of moved away a little bit, and he said, isn't that dress just gorgeous? And she kind of went like this, and then uh, he said, uh, young lady, uh, are you a stranger in town? She didn't want to give an answer, you know. And then he, he said, well, you know, I, I, I just saw you standing here and I thought, uh, maybe you, you, you're just a passerby and um, are you by yourself? She again tried to, and then he said, uh, wouldn't you like to go inside and, and see some of those dresses, uh, you know, firsthand? And he said, come on, come on, come on, come on. So she followed him inside and she began to look at one dress and another dress. And then he went and fetched dresses and see how they fit on her and all that. So he said, would you like this one? And she couldn't believe it because her mother had always said, you better be careful, don't talk to strangers, you know, there are bad people out there and all that. And she, she thought, this guy's not a bad guy after all. All that I've been, been told about, you know, people in the cities. <laughs> uh, and so, would you like this one? Would you like that one? So he got her about 12 dresses and, and he said, look, because you're a good young girl, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll buy them for you. You will do what? I'll buy them for you. She couldn't believe it. This, this guy is, uh, he's a perfect stranger. Why, why is he doing this for me, you know? So uh, then he, after he paid, he went out and put the clothing in the car and said, by the way, have you had lunch? No. Uh, well, look, let's, uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, I can take you home. You can uh, try the dresses there and all that. And uh, you can eat lunch. You can take a shower. Um, so she was a little bit hesitant, but she went with him. And he showed a beautiful room with a beautiful bed and said, go, you know, lie down there and take a nap. And when you're ready to eat, just let me know, uh, et cetera. So, she took a shower, she went to lie down, and then began to try the dresses and everything else. And, and uh, then after she tried all the dresses, she, he said, do you like, like them? Oh, I loved them, I loved them. And so he said, okay, now how are you gonna pay for them? And she said, pay for them? Yes, I bought these dresses and now you need to pay for them. Well, it turned out to be a pimp and led her into prostitution. And because she was a young, pretty lady, she got a high price. So she became a prostitute. And, uh, but finally one day she developed some sores. And when the pimp noticed that she had those sores, he knew she could no longer, he could no longer use her. So he th threw her out of the house. And now, she found herself sleeping on the cardboards. And now and then the thought would come of home. 
but shame and reproach would block those thoughts. She would think if my parents ever knew what I got into, they would die. So she desperately wanted to go home, but she was afraid to go home. And besides, she didn't have any money. Now she was sick. She didn't have any money. She got a knife to protect herself from other three people. And one day, she began to think about home again. And she decided that she was going to do a collect call. When she called the parents, the parents were amazed. As far as they were concerned, she had died. So they begged her to come home, and she cried and said, I would love to, but, but if you know what I was into, never mind, just come home. I don't have any way to get home. We'll send you the money. So the parents sent the money for the bus, and she got on the bus, and as she's rolling on the way back home, she thinks of all her experience of what she was like when she was growing up in the wholesomeness of her environment. She realized the mistakes she had made in running away from home, the mess she had gotten into, and now perhaps facing the, the shame but as the bus got close to the bus station, she was surprised. She wondered who was going to come and fetch me, well, dad, with mom, etc. And there was a large crowd and a big sign which said what? Welcome home. When the bus door opened and she stepped out of the bus, her father jumped from the midst of the crowd and went and grabbed her and swung her around and just cried and she wept and wept and wept. And she realized then that there was a longing on the part of her family to have her come home. And friend, there's a longing on the part of your father's heart to have you come home. And all those people who are out there who are running from God, all it takes is for them to finally stop running. To do what? Stop running. So if there is someone here tonight who is having problems finding God, could it be that there's something in you that keeps you back from finding him. Because he says, you will seek me and find me. When you shall have, search for me with all your heart. Anyone here tonight who has had a struggle and would like to say, I recognize that I need to stop running. There's something in your life that you need to surrender. So you can experience God in a much richer, fuller way. And tonight you'd like to say, Lord, I want to quit running. Anybody here?
Amen. Anybody else? There's nothing better, my friend, than to experience God fully in your life. But you have to be willing to surrender those things that are hard to give up. But when you do, go find the joy that comes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how the enemy keeps us distracted by either wholesome things that appear to be morally good or by doing an escape and evasion, hoping that somehow we'd never have to face the reality of self-surrender. But Lord, you know our needs. And we know that according to your scriptures, that we're not the ones who seek. We may be the ones who awaken to our needs and begin to search, but it's you who awakens that reality in us. And we discover that you have been chasing after us all along. Oh, forgive us, Father. We have become so blind, so dull, so senseless that we would rather hold on to that which would destroy us than to give ourselves to you who will save us. So, Father, tonight, you see in the hands, draw us to thee, we pray. Give us the victory over those things that are an impediment and make us, Lord, to know you. Whom to know thou hast said is life eternal. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.